Thank you, Lee. So good morning again, Redeemer. My name is Jonathan. I serve with the pastoral team here. And um, before we get started, even just watching that whole thing and thinking about what church is and what it means to be a part of the family of God, that when one of us is hurting or struggling or going through something difficult or about to engage in something that's difficult, how it ought to affect all of us, right? How it ought to um, impact all of us and how we are called, the scripture calls us to, to weep with those who weep and, and to mourn with those who mourn. And even thinking, as I'm sure many of you have been following the news the last 24 hours, how 29 people have been killed in our country um, just, la- yes, just yesterday and this morning, and, and I can't help but just, just feel overwhelmed by that. And, and especially the, the shootings in El Paso were directed, were, were targeted towards um, those who were Hispanic. And I just can't help but imagine what those of you in our midst might be feeling if you are Hispanic. And, and so I just wanted to take two minutes just to spend two minutes in silence to just pray. Um, pray for those people. Pray for those families. Pray for our country and the mess that it is in right now. And um, yeah, let's just take a, like a real two minutes to just silently pray before God. So let's just go to him. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for what it means to be a part of your family. And, um, and I pray right now, Lord, for, um, just for those who are suffering in our country right now um, and those who are suffering in our midst right now. And um, it just feels appropriate that we're in the Psalms, that we are learning what it means to lament, Father. And I pray that, um, that you would help us this morning to, uh, to weep with those who weep. Um, to mourn with those who mourn, Father. I pray now that as we look into your word, Lord, help us to, um, to see you more clearly, Lord God, to, to know you um, in, in a more personal way this morning, Lord God, and help us as Redeemer um, to, uh, to be equipped for the mission that you have set out for us, Lord. We love you with all of our hearts, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are continuing in our series on the Psalms this morning, and we are actually venturing into book two of the Psalter, 
And um, specifically, we're looking at Psalm 48. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 48. We're going to jump around a little bit, but we will primarily be in Psalm 48. But before we jump into our text this morning, as you know, we just finished up VBS. And um, throughout the week, something that was being talked about were something called God sightings. And when I first heard that, I was, I was curious. I'm like, wow, Redeemer's a cool place. Like, God just kind of shows up and like Shekinah glory sort of thing. Um, but then I, I realized what everyone was talking about when they were talking about God sightings, that specifically, anytime our leaders or our kids saw something that showed God's grace and mercy in the midst of what could have been a disaster... Or anytime our leaders or kids saw someone acting in a way that resembled the character of God, we called those God sightings. Some of those examples were, were some of our teens stepping up and helping with our kids when they could have been doing any other thing that a teen does during the summer. Um, even Ginny, you know, coming up and helping with, uh, with nursing and what have you, that we just, that was just so cool, that was so helpful, and it was something that we needed, and it was just shows that God's hand is active in every single thing that we do. Now, the reason I bring that all up is because this morning, our text does something very similar. So as we work our way through Psalm 48, I want us to keep our eyes open, and I want us to see where God might be showing up in an unexpected way. I want us to keep our eyes out to see where God might be showing up in an unexpected way. So like I said, we are in book two of the Psalter. We talked about that a few weeks back, so I don't want to go too far into it. But basically, book two begins with lament, and there's this rocky trajectory toward hope before the bottom completely falls out in book three. And the book begins with a collection of psalms composed by or for the sons of Korah. And so many of you are sitting there like, okay, well, who are the sons of Korah? Well, the sons of Korah are descendants of a man named Korah, and this man led a rebellion against God and Moses back in number 16, where the whole earth opened up and swallowed. It was, it's a wild story. You should go read it. But what's so interesting about that is that as if you move forward in the book of Numbers, in chapters 25, verses 11, we see that the sons of this man were actually spared. And we don't know a ton about this group, but we know that they were singers and that this group of psalms and another group of psalms, Psalms 84 through 88, are attributed to them. So our particular psalm, Psalm 48, is exactly that. It's a a song written by or for the sons of Korah. So let's jump in, right? Psalm 48, verses 1 through 3. It says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Now, the opening phrase of that particular psalm, Psalm 48, says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And that phrase identically shows up in two other spots in the Psalter. It shows up in Psalm 96, verse 4, and Psalm 145, verse 3. And What you would expect to happen happens in those two Psalms where following that great is the Lord and greatly to be praised is just an exaltation of God, this worship of God. It's just, it's, it's expected, right? We start off great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and then we start praising God. But something in Psalm 48 is like a smidgen different here, and I want us to take a look. 
It says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. So the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is, what is this psalm calling the joy of all the earth? What is the joy of all the earth? Well, if you look at the sentence, his holy mountain is the joy of all the earth. Which might feel a little confusing because I thought Yahweh, God, was the joy of all the earth. But the psalmist here is telling us that his holy mountain is the joy of all the earth. The text goes on. It says, um, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And even here, our ESV translations, they do something with this word. They say north, but the word is probably better translated as Zephon, which is the mountain of the gods in Canaanite theology. It's the mountain of the gods in Canaanite theology. So basically what the psalmist is doing is saying, yeah, 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 no, I know about your mountain, Canaanites. I know about your gods. Let me tell you something. Mount Zion, where my God dwells, no, that's the real Mount Zion. That's the real Mount Zephon. That's the place where holiness and divinity dwell. So there's this sort of like argument happening right here in the beginning of this psalm where the, where the psalmist is actually saying to the surrounding nations, you have no idea who you're dealing with. You have no idea who you're dealing with. The text goes on. Mount Zion in the far north, or in Zaphon, in the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Right? So even here, he's just unpacking the beauty of Mount Zion, the beauty of the temple, the beauty of Jerusalem, the city of the great king. He's saying, everyone look at how amazing this place is. Everyone look at how beautiful this place is. But the funny part is, is that comparing Mount Zion to Mount Zaphon, even geographically, makes no sense. Because actually, Mount Zion, at least the physical Mount Zion that we see in ancient Near Eastern culture, is actually much smaller than where Mount Zaphon would have been. So it's actually not that impressive, which is interesting because what goes on in my brain when I'm thinking about that is that like, oh, that... That's kind of how God works, right? He kind of works in a way where he, he enters into the world in a very regular way. In a very regular way. So right from jump, we see that the psalmist is focusing on the city of God, Jerusalem. He's focusing on Mount Zion, which is where the temple mount is. And he wants us to see how beautiful it is. The text goes on. Verses 4. And following. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. Interesting thing happens here because he just talked about the city of the great king, and now he talks about all these other kings. All right, so he's comparing kings, right? He's like, there's the great king, and then there's all these other kings, and let's see what these other kings do. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. All right, they're getting ready to attack. They're getting ready to pounce on the great city. And verse 5 says, as soon as they saw it, not God, as soon as they saw the city, they were astounded. 
They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them, their anguish as of a woman in labor. Just the sight of it. And they were like, no, we don't want anything to do with that. We don't want anything to do with what's happening there. Which again, I'm thinking in my head, if this, this is being read by Israelites after the exile and they're back in their nation, they're probably looking around and wondering, like, there's no way the Persians are scared of us. There's no way the Persians are scared of us. So something else is going on here. Something that maybe even the psalmist wasn't even aware there's something, there's, there's this thread of hope being woven in through the Psalter as they're sitting there post-exile wondering, like, what's going to happen to us, Lord? Right? Because remember, the temple post-exile was not really that exciting. This is not Solomon's temple we're dealing with. This is like a shadow of the glory that was present in Jerusalem before. Verse 7. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. What the psalmist is doing here, he's, he's actually drawing our attention back to the Exodus, where the same east winds divided the seas in half so that they can walk through on dry ground. He's reminding his people that, don't worry, I got you. I'm your God. I'm your God, and I've acted before, and I will act again. It's something that we need to remember, even sitting here after a day like yesterday and what we've read in the news and what kind of scrolled through our Twitter feeds and our Facebook feeds, that, that God has delivered us before, and he will deliver us again. We need to feel that. That needs to be a truth that we wrestle with today. And we can't just run to our, our Facebook. We can't just run to whether it's MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, whatever the case. We can't run there for hope. We can't run to a voting booth for hope. But we need to run to the one who gives hope, Jesus Christ. It's so important. Because God acted in the past, he will act again. He promises us that. And even just this little word by the east wind gives us that hope. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Again. God establishing his city forever? I wonder how they felt as they were reading that. I wonder what was going through their minds. And, and we don't want to speculate too much, but I can't imagine that they were thinking that, like, we are the light of the ancient Near East right now. Just look at us. Like, man, they were kind of at the bottom of the totem pole, but they believed in a promise. They believed in a promise. And the text goes on, and I know we're moving quickly through this text because I have, a, I have a goal I'm trying to get to. But it says in verse 9, we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. This psalm is about the temple of God. And where do they go to 
find the steadfast love, the hesed love, that covenant faithfulness love that was given to God's people by God, they go into the temple. And where do, what do they find in the temple? Well, the temple's the dwelling place of God. The dwelling place of God. It's that place where heaven and earth start to do this where heaven and earth start to come together just a little bit, as one theologian calls it, a thin space, where where all of a sudden now you're experiencing something that's otherworldly. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. And I love this, right? Because where does it start? It starts in the dwelling place of God, and then it expands to the ends of the earth. But again, I'm sitting here imagining myself being an ancient Israelite, looking around, wondering, what are you talking about, sons of Korah? Because I look around at the nations, and there's not a single one who loves Yahweh. What do you mean? Again, something's going on here. Something's happening here. Something, again, that I wonder if he's even aware himself as he's writing this. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. And here, the psalmist begins to praise God. Right? He's shifting away from the temple a bit. He's shifting away from the city of God. He's shifting away from Mount Zion. He's beginning to lift up the name of God. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. And he comes right back to Mount Zion. Comes right back. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments it's amazing it's almost uncomfortable reading this because we would never think to to speak of an inanimate object in the way that the psalmist is speaking in fact it would it would almost feel idolatrous to us to speak of an inanimate object the way the psalmist is speaking but yet he does it so we need to we need to understand it we need to grapple with it The text goes on, verse 12 and following. And and this, verses 12 and 13, just has a string of commands that are now being given to the people of God. It starts like this. He says, walk about Zion. First command. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. Why? So you can tell the next generation. So you can tell the next generation. Understand what it is that you are a part of, Israel. Wrap your mind around what it is that you belong to, Israel. And don't keep it to yourself. Please don't keep it to yourself. Tell the next generation. This past week, we had VBS. And VBS is a hard week for adults. 
right? For some reason, kids are fine until about like one, two o'clock and then they start to lose their minds and you're sitting there wondering like, why am I doing this? Why can't my kids just like relax and, and like go swimming for five minutes without killing each other? Because they're tired, because they're tired and that's what they do when they're tired. But we wake them up. I have my kids up at like seven o'clock every morning. We're going to VBS. But we do that. We do things like that. We have things like Redeemer Kids, our Sunday school, because we believe that the things that we hold dearest, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the kingdom, the good news of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, we hold those things so dearly that we are compelled to tell the next generation. That's what we care about. And so we do crazy things like VBS because we want them to know. And that's exactly what the psalmist is imploring the people of Israel to do. Look around. See what you belong to. Remember the chesed love of God. I love saying that. Remember that love. Tell your kids about it. Tell your kids and then tell their kids. They need to know. But then something really strange happens in this psalm. Verse 13 says, Consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation, verse 14, that this is God. That, that what is God? Right, like, show yourself, psalmist, what are you talking about? That this is God. Like, grammatically, the only thing that is there are the citadels, are Mount Zion, are the temple. That's the only thing that's there that could possibly be God that is being spoken of here. One commentator says that the psalm goes within a whisper of glorifying the earthly might and defenses rather than glorifying God. Another commentator says that this mountain is, in a sense, God. What's going on? Doug Green, who was a former professor at Westminster Seminary and teaches in Australia now, says that God has become so identified with Mount Zion, the city, and the temple. He dwells there that the city itself has become in some way sharing in his divinity. He says divinity attaches itself by calling the temple God. Psalm 48 opens up the door to understanding Jesus as divine. Hold that thought. We're going to get there. And I think it's really interesting if you flip to Psalm 27.4. It says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And and you're thinking, it's like, okay, of course we want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. But as someone walked into the temple, they weren't literally gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, but in some way they were. In some way, they were. See, God's impulse is to exist physically. That's his impulse. And now I want us to jump forward to John chapter 1. 
John chapter 1, which I bet many of us can recite that passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has overcome it. Now jump down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh. The Word became physical. And dwelt among us. And the Greek there is actually, and tabernacled among us. The Word became flesh and templed among us. Okay? The Word became flesh and templed among us. He does it again in chapter 2, verses 11 and following. This is the cleansing of the temple. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And then a dramatic shift. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Like, bro, where do you get off? Basically is what they're saying. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it. And in three days, I will raise it up. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. I don't get it. They're missing something. And you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus Christ was the new temple. Jesus was everything that we were looking forward to in the Old Testament as it pushed forward. And so when we start to think about this strange verse in Psalm 48, referring to Zion and, and the city of, of, of the great king as being the joy of all the earth, and as we think of the, 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 the articulation of the temple and the citadels and the fortresses, and then saying, this is God, one thing needs to come to our minds as we look at that psalm through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that only one thing can be referred to here, and that's Jesus. Because Jesus is the place where divinity was embodied. So this impulse for God to exist physically happens in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It happens in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But the story doesn't end there. And this is where I think it is so important that we wrap our minds around what it means to be followers of Jesus. What it means to be brought into union with Christ. Union with Christ is, is, a, is, a, is a doctrine that has been just cherished by Christians for 2,000 years. Meaning that everything that Jesus has, when we believe, we get it too. We get it too. 
And so what does that mean? That means if you flip with me to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll let Paul the Apostle tell us what he means by that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and following. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made, by, made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ, remember, union with Jesus. Remember, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What is the dividing wall of hostility? It's that huge thick curtain in the middle of the temple that kept Jews away from Gentiles, that kept us away from God. It, it's, it's saying like, no, 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 no more. We're not dealing with that sort of world anymore. We're tearing down that dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross and thereby killing the hostility. And then it goes on. It says, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. Because everyone needed to hear about the gospel. Those who were outside of the camp of the Israelites and those who were Israelites themselves. They needed to hear this peace. For, though, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And here's where I want us to pay particularly close attention. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. A holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there was a temple in the Old Testament. That temple became Jesus. And in this cosmic passing of the baton, now we, the body of Christ, the people of God, are the very place where Jesus dwells. Let that sit for a second. Where we go, Jesus goes. We gotta wrap our minds around that. And also, we need to ask the question, how did Jesus tabernacle? How did Jesus temple? Right? To make a noun into a verb, how did Jesus temple how did he tabernacle and the place where we go to figure that out are the gospels where we see that Jesus the things that moved him had an eye toward the broken the poor the unwanted that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief that Jesus spoke truth regardless of the consequences. 
that Jesus entered in to the suffering of this world. So we've been talking about the lament in the Psalms. We've been talking about what it means to be honest with God. But lament is not just this cool way that we can have a closer relationship with God. It is actually a call to push outward into the world and weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. And I can't help but think of what's going on in our country right now and wondering how can we weep with those who weep? How can we tabernacle well in a time like this? Because where we go, God goes. And if you remember anything from today, remember that where we go, God goes. And we're either showing the world what God is truly like, or people are getting a really messed up picture of who he is. And that happens, right? People kind of point fingers at the church and say, oh, yeah, them. Look at what they did. And sometimes it's for right reason because we are standing up for holiness and righteousness. But so often it's because we're running our mouths off on Facebook or Twitter or whatever the case may be. Or we're arguing about things and engaging in things that maybe we need not invest so much in. God is calling us to represent him in this world. Paul talks about us as being ambassadors for Christ Jesus, that as we go about the world doing our business with our neighbors at work, wherever the case, wherever we might be, we're doing it on behalf of Christ. And what they see in us is what they're going to think of Jesus. And even, even in our midst, we have, we have opportunities to do that, right? Even thinking this past week, Redeemer, putting on VBS, Right? Like that was an opportunity for us to show the world what Jesus, to show the kids in our community what Jesus is like. Every Monday night, Andrew hosts a recovery group here calling for people who are struggling in addiction to get help because he wants to show the world what Jesus is like. It means getting dirty. It means actually going so far into the filth that we end up getting called names possibly, right? Jesus was named among the sinners. Jesus was hung up between two criminals. And what do you think everyone thought about him as they walked by? They're like, oh, just another criminal, right? There's something to that, that we engage so much so that there's actually like a question like, What are you doing? Like, why are you with those people? Why are you hanging out with that crew? Every Thursday, Eric Bergstrom is trying to engage that with our kids, with our youth, with our teens, trying to show them what Jesus is like. And every Sunday morning, and this is a shameless plug for Redeemer Kids because we need help. We need people to sign up and help us with Redeemer Kids on Sunday morning. There's an opportunity to tell the next generation about what Jesus is like. And if you're interested, please come see me or see Jess Smith or Lee West because we really do need the help. Redeemer, we have such a high calling as followers of Jesus. Such a high calling. The temple of God the dwelling place of God, the place where only one man was allowed to enter once a year, we get it all day long. 
all day long. And we need to ask ourselves what we're doing with it. What are we doing with it? And I'm struggling with that question. What am I doing with it? And not in like a, I mean, if, you ever, if you've ever seen Schindler's List, right, there's that scene at the end where Schindler is just like, oh, this ring or this watch or this car or this hubcap, like, could have saved, like, not in this self-condemning way. Not like that. But in response to the love of Jesus that he has lavished upon us. That he's lavished upon us. And so as we come to the table this morning, as we consider what it means to follow Jesus, what I'm, what I'm asking us to consider is that as we take of the bread and we drink of the cup, what are we proclaiming? Because the Bible says that when we do that, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. But many of us are terrified of even being remotely uncomfortable. But Jesus says, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And if we are to be those who proclaim the Lord's death, then we need to be those who embody the Lord's death. Because that is the only means by which we will be raised to new life. And I know I pound that a lot. That's something that's like kind of a hobby horse of mine, so I apologize. But God is calling us to be these mobile temples throughout the world in our neighborhoods, inviting our neighbors over to spend time with them, to hear what they're going through, to mourn with those who mourn, to step into the suffering of our brothers and sisters. Because he wants to show the world what God is like, and he chose us to do it. He chose us to do it, which should cause much fear and trembling, but it also should cause much excitement and joy. Because we get to be the joy of the entire earth in Christ. In Christ. Massively important that we remember that. So as you come to the table this morning, think about that. Think about where you can be a God sighting, right? We talked about it with our kids this past week. How and where can you be a picture of the living God in your midst? Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace, we thank you for your mercy, and we thank you for this high calling that we have received from you. Father, you are so good, and you've given us so much, and we thank you for that, Father. I pray that these words that your psalmist spoke thousands of years ago, Father, that they would land in a way that moves us, Father that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear those around us, the cries of pain around us, Father, and that we would step in in the same way Jesus stepped into this world, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name.